Good morning. You may remember how Paul, in his epic uh, letter to the Romans, this grand theological treatise, spends one whole chapter, chapter 16, bringing greetings. Uh, I thought it might be appropriate To, to bring you greetings. Paul brings these greetings uh, from his travels. And you all have sent me out with the message of the gospel over this past year. And whenever I go and preach at sister churches, I bring greetings from Preston and Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven. And these brothers and sisters, they send their greetings right back, sometimes even by name as they know particular ones of you in this church. And they, and they say, please tell so-and-so that we said hi, that we're thankful for them. And sometimes I remember to do that, sometimes I don't. So I'm doing it now. <laughs> so this morning, I bring you greetings from Dave Sherwood and Trinity Presbyterian Church in Providence, Rhode Island, who you all helped to replant 20 or so years ago. I bring you greetings from David Hutchinson, my cousin. Not really, but let's say he is. Christ the Shepherd in Danbury, Connecticut. Their congregation brings you greetings, a church that we helped plant again about 10 or so years ago. I bring you greetings from Ren Cabente and the congregation of Uptown Community Church in Washington Heights, Manhattan. I bring you greetings from Danny Jang and Grace Stamford Church in Connecticut. I bring you greetings from Mark Middlecoff and Grace Hamptons Church in the Hamptons on Long Island. I bring you greetings from Michael Kitka and Ascension Presbyterian Church, named after Anabino, as it were, the Ascension of Christ in Queens, New York. I bring you greetings from Daniel Jarsfer and the brothers and sisters in um, Charlestown, Rhode Island, in, in Christ Our Hope Church. I believe they've met in a couple different little towns there. Christ Our Hope, those brothers and sisters bring you their greetings. I bring you greetings, of course, from our three worshiping congregations, Chip Anderson, and The Hill, Andrew Holbrook and CPC Fairfield, and Mike Brungy, CPC Wallingford. What a joy it is for me in my travels to get to bring greetings in Christ from you all to them. And now I hope you all know how much they are encouraged by your faith. How the joy that they take in knowing of Christ Presbyterian Church here in New Haven. And I hope you take joy in knowing in your partnership with them, that this great Christ who has come to earth and is now ascended sends himself back into our midst and joins us together. So I bring you those greetings. What a joy it is to live for the kingdom and not for our own personal treasures and trash. And yet not everyone is persuaded of that, are they? Um, I meant to bring my bulletin up here. Some of you got here early enough to be able to read the meditation prior to the sermon. Let me read it for you now. Not everyone is persuaded that living for the kingdom is what this life is all about. Here's an excerpt from Walker Percy's remarkable, Walker Percy's remarkable book, Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book, one of the great writers of the 20th century. Chapter 10 was entitled, The Bored Self. Why the self is the only object in the cosmos which gets bored. And this is what he writes. The word boredom didn't enter our language until the 18th century. No one knows its etymology. One guess is that bore may derive from the French verb borer, to stuff. Question, 
Why was there no such word before the 18th century? A, was it because people were not bored before the 18th century? But wasn't Caligula bored? B, was it because people were bored but didn't have a word for it? C, was it because people were too busy trying to stay alive to get bored? But what about the idle English royalty and noblemen? Or is it because there is a special sense in which for the past two or three hundred years, modernism as it were, the self has perceived itself as a leftover which cannot be accounted for by its own objective view of the world. And that in spite of an ever heightened self-consciousness, increased leisure, ever more access to cultural and recreational facilities, ever more instruction on self-help, self-growth, self-enrichment, the self feels ever more imprisoned in itself. No, worse than imprisoned. Because a prisoner at least knows he is imprisoned and sets store by the freedom awaiting him and the world to be open when in fact the self is not and it does not. A state of affairs which has to be called something besides imprisonment, e.g. boredom. Boredom is the self being stuffed with itself. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your kingdom that you have brought us into it and that you save us regularly from our temptations to leave your kingdom, from, from the temptations that our heart receive every day to live for ourselves instead of for your kingdom. Use these words now, words that Jesus spoke and Luke so faithfully was inspired to write down 2,000 years ago, these words which have changed the world. Use these words to change us this day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you know anything about your own heart, about the human heart, you know that it is never empty. If you know anything about your mind, you know that it is never turned off. Even when you're sleeping, you're dreaming and thinking things that your subconscious gives you. The heart is never empty. It is going to be filled with something, the question of course is what? What do we fill our hearts with? Do we stuff them full of our boring selves? Do we let diseased parasites come fill our heart and gorge themselves on our flesh? Sorry, I've been watching Stranger Things on Netflix. as the horrific images of things like that are really only a small taste of the true horror of what can happen to the soul and the heart. Do you let your heart be filled with diseased parasites that just gorge themselves on your flesh? Or do you fill your heart with the true treasures, the true riches of the kingdom? The riches of the kingdom. This is what this whole passage is about as Jesus comes, this savior for our souls. He comes to save us, both a, a, a completed salvation through his atoning sacrifice. Those that put their faith in Christ are saved from all condemnation. And he's saving us in the present from our temptations, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he has a future salvation promise for us. This Christ who comes, this Savior, he comes to save us, to save our hearts from being stuffed full of our boring selves or from diseases that would destroy us. He comes to show us, fill our hearts with the treasures of the kingdom. Now, at the risk of jumping too quickly over things, 
before we get to the text itself, let me just quickly define the kingdom, what we talk about, because hopefully you'll see in this passage, and I'll say many times in this sermon, something to the effect of, let's fill our hearts with the riches of the kingdom. So let's briefly at least summarize what we mean by that. The kingdom, of course, is the kingdom of God, Christ's kingdom. So what we mean by the kingdom is Christ himself. Fill our hearts with the king, fill our hearts with the members of the kingdom, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and fill our hearts with the values of the kingdom, the goodness and truth and beauty of the Lord. And so when we say fill our hearts with the kingdom, that's shorthand for saying fill our hearts with Christ himself, with our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they're in Long Island or uptown Manhattan or right here today sitting next to you, and fill our hearts with the values of the kingdom. Fill our hearts with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit listed out in Galatians. That's what we mean by fill our hearts with the kingdom. The king, the kingdom's subjects, and the kingdom's values. Our text this morning has these three basic parts. First, there's this, this prologue, this preliminary principle. And secondly, there's this parable that Jesus tells. And then finally, there's this section of rich precepts. So a preliminary principle that we must learn and be reminded and remember what life is. And then a parable where we're going to be taught that our soul is required of us. And then precepts that we're to fill our souls with the riches of the kingdom. So first, look for a moment with me at this, this prologue, this preliminary principle to our text. Jesus has been, you'll, if, you glance, if you have the scriptures in front of you and you glance your eyes up, you see that chapter 12 of Luke begins with Jesus addressing these crowds because many thousands of peoples had been gathering together, trampling them, each other to get near Jesus. So hopefully this morning, feel free if you actually want to just use your elbows just for a moment and elbow the person next to you. Like you've created some space for yourself, but you haven't had to trample to get close to the word of God this morning. This day, that was what was happening. These crowds are trampling to get near. And so Jesus um, actually begins, he sees all these crowds gathering around him. He begins by addressing his disciples, those that have already shown that they're following him, that they are apprenticing themselves to him. So he's addressing them, but then as he teaches them, someone from the crowd overhearing all this stuff all this good news, Jesus is saying that Jesus has all this power and authority. This guy pi pipes up. Tell me, uh, uh, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And it, you ever see these, these movies where, you know, the, the genie shows up and I get, will grant you three wishes. And the first wish is always something like, I would like some cheese fries. Like, you idiot, like what? Like, you, you can ask for anything. You're going to waste what? Like, that's what this guy is doing. He's been listening to Jesus, the creator, the king of all the world, talk about the glories of the kingdom, and he's like, I want some more stuff. You've got authority. Give me my stuff. So Jesus just responds by saying, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he turns to the whole crowd. And he gives us this remarkable preliminary principle. 
take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So here's this preliminary principle. We must learn and be reminded and remember what life is. What is life? And we're going to learn through this whole text, life is a gift to you from your heavenly Father. But Jesus begins by laying out for us, he uses this method, this sort of classic method of teaching that um, is very helpful for me personally, that uh, some of the little Latin I remember, via negata, the way of negation. He teaches us what life is by beginning by teaching us something it is not. Life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. That's the whole point of the passage that Jennifer read for us from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where the writer says, I looked, I just gathered everything this world has to offer. And at the end of the day, I, I just accumulated every type of pleasure. And at the end of the day, I realized it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's, it's just, it just disappears like the wind, like the mist. And I need connection with reality above the sun. Under the sun, life is what it is. I need more. That's the whole point of Ecclesiastes 2. That's what Jesus is reminding us here. Life is not the abundance of our possessions. Do you agree with that? I would trust and assume that you do. If you're in the kingdom, you do. If you're not yet in the kingdom, you're at least open to that idea, and you're not, I'm assuming. But there is this sort of worldview that's just crass materialism. And what I mean by materialism is not even so much wealth, but, in, but rather like the material universe is all that matters. What I can see and feel and touch and experience with my senses is all that matters. There is no, so, no such thing as the soul. There's no such thing as love. There's no such thing as peace or joy. There's no inner spiritual reality. It's all material. Assuming you don't live that way, <laughs> assuming you grant the point, grant Jesus' point, that life does not consist in the material things, well then, Jesus goes on to say, for those of us that do agree with that, thank you, Lord Jesus, for reminding us of this. Jesus says, good, now that you're on board with me, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Covetousness, greed, desire that's out of control, inordinate desire. Just like the heart cannot be empty and the mind cannot turn itself off, your desires are never neutral. You're always desiring things. Christ is not calling us to be rid of all desire, like some sort of mystical, I am free of all desire. He's calling us to properly order our desires. I would imagine all of you desire uh, a good stretch of sleep. That's a good thing for health and renewal. I would say it's an inordinate desire if you're desiring that more right now than listening to your gracious host. <laughs> We're full of desires. We just have to order them correctly. So Jesus is saying be on guard against this covetousness, this greed, this inordinate desire, these desires that are out of control. 
I've always remembered just the, the visual. Everybody, you can do this with me, but hold up the number of fingers of the 10th commandment. Okay, hold up 10 fingers. What's the 10th commandment? So you're holding up 10 fingers for the 10th commandment, and you remember what the 10th commandment is, thou shalt not covet. So now use what my, one of my seminary professors said, the I wantsies. Grasp, grasp with these 10 fingers, you see. That's my visual reminder. The 10th commandment, thou shalt not have the I wantsies. Just grabbing and grasping all the time. Jesus is saying, you agree with me that life is not stuff. Therefore, you must be on guard against the I wantsies. It's the 10th commandment for a reason. It sums up all that comes before it. The 10th commandment kills all of your life. It kills the first nine commandments. If you, if you give in, if you let this diseased parasite of covetousness come in and take control of your heart, the I wantsies. I've really, been really challenged lately by friends of mine who have reminded me with respect to just one of the plagues of our world and our modern world as well, um, racism, that it's really not enough to say I'm not a racist. One must be warring against racism in one's own heart, that you're either given in to racism or you're trying to be rid of it. But there's no such thing as neutrality. And I would say the same thing with respect to what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't say, good, you grant the point that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You can hang out in neutral. You're good. You're good. You can hang out in neutral. He doesn't say that. He says you must be anti-greed, anti-covetousness. You must war against it. You must take caution, be on guard against the greed that wants to take possession of your heart, which you know it is doing. It's trying to do, even as we sit, speak, even as we sit here. Greed is trying to take over your heart. It no, doesn't stop in this lifetime. You know how I know that? Because Bruce Springsteen tells us that. <laughs> His classic song, Badlands. Poor man want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. And a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. Doesn't matter your stage and age in life. Covetousness is trying to take over your heart. Jesus says, be on guard. He's the savior for our souls. He's warning us. He's rescuing us. He's rescuing us from these external forces, the world and the devil, that are, to be sure, trying to distract us and betray us and deceive us. Now, th this is not a polemic against the beauties and wonders of Barnes & Noble or the beauties and wonders of grocery stores. But have you ever tried to walk from the front to the back of a place like that without your eyes wandering? It's impossible. I want to buy every book and buy every type of food by the time I'm at the end of the aisle. They do a remarkable job of catching your attention. And now I'm desiring Cheerios, and I wasn't even thinking about Cheerios 10 minutes ago. They put these desires in our hearts. Keep them in proper order and you're A-OK. -okay. But that's just an, an illustration of how the world and the devil are just putting these values in front of us all the time, 24-7. But Jesus actually goes on to say, 
He makes it clear, in this, relatively clear, I think, in this passage, but certainly clear in Matthew 15, where he says it's out of the heart that evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander come. It's out of the heart. I've remembered for a bunch of years back, this shows you how old I am, but back when Dan Rather was still the anchor of CBS Evening News, and one year he was covering these massive spring floods of all the melting snow from the northern Midwest. And so the Mississippi River was just flooding its banks and flooding small towns and flooding farms. And, and through the course of this one week, he reported a stand-up report from in front of this one particular farmhouse that the waters were creeping towards it. Then, then on Tuesday, the waters had come so they built sandbags around the house. And then Wednesday and Thursday, and essentially it gets to the point of the week where he's reporting from in front of this house in a boat because they have built sandbag, sandbag walls around this farmhouse higher than the roof of the house itself. The floodwaters were higher than the second story of the house, and yet the house was saved because the bag, sandbags had, had done their job. And then I tuned in the next night and he's reporting from that same spot, and there's no sign of that house. It had been swept away. And he said what happened was the sewers backed up, and from within, the toilets and the tubs and the sinks overflowed, and just the house was just taken and washed away. The danger is from within, Jesus says. He doesn't say merely be on guard against the covetousness, the lies that the devil tells you, and the world's poor values, but your own twisted fallen self, there's still a remnant of your fallenness. Be on guard. Stand watch. Don't be neutral, but actively war against covetousness. So that takes us then to the second passage, second part of our passage. Jesus then gives us this remarkable parable to bring this home for us. He tells the story of this rich man. The punchline is going to be of this parable that your soul is required of you. Therefore, fill it with the riches of the kingdom. Don't leave it empty. Your soul is required of you. Therefore, fill it with the riches and the treasures of the kingdom. Notice how he begins this parable with just this little, this little moment. It's not really a throwaway line. It's, it's, it's interesting. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. This man didn't produce the crops. The land produced it. He's made wealthy by photosynthesis. He's made wealthy by things outside of himself. He doesn't even seem to notice that. If we don't notice that, Paul has a really clear bumper sticker for us. Every time I hear this from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it just pulls me up short. The very simple summary of reality. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Raise your hand if you, well, this, I don't mean to be an idiot here, because maybe somebody philosophically believes that, and I don't mean to mock it, but Christians don't believe this, so don't raise your hand. But I, I'm assuming no one here believes that you pre-existed yourself. Did you pre-exist yourself and then choose for you to come into being? The Christian understands there was a time when we were not 
We didn't ask to be made alive. We were given life. It was a gift to us. And so on and so on. Every breath you've taken, where did the ability to take that breath come from? Every, every bit of your, your, your blood taking oxygen to the parts of your body and giving your body strength. What do you have that you did not receive? So Jesus begins the parable by just a little, little moment here where he just says, here's a man that doesn't live by that principle. He doesn't even notice that everything he's ever gotten has been as a gift from outside of himself. And then notice as he tells this parable that there's these two voices speaking to this man. Two voices, essentially the voice of foolishness and the voice of wisdom. In this case, it's his own voice and the Lord himself. I believe that's true. I believe that two voices are constantly speaking to us 24-7. The voice of foolishness and the voice of wisdom. I believe God is speaking 24-7 to us. So in this parable, here's these two voices, and which one is this man listening to? He's listening to himself. He's listening to himself. He's listening to his, his own self. He refers to himself over and over and over, this very self-centered life. And then the second voice, God comes and breaks through. And he says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. These, the, your soul is required of you. So there's the punchline. We've been given this great gift, this gift of life, this gift of a soul, and your soul is required of you. But let's slow down for just a moment. What even is your soul? There's all sorts of ways of getting at this. I hope you've come to some understanding of your soul. It's something that distinguishes us from the animals, from the rocks and the trees. One way of describing the soul is the soul is essentially your distinct and conscious personhood. Your very self. Your soul is yourself. Your distinct and conscious personhood. Your soul is that which makes you, you. That which is essential and irreducible to your very person. Let me give an example. Um, I don't know if anybody here has, has lost a finger or a limb. Um, my wife's grandfather, uh, we called him Pawpaw because he was a woodworker and his hands had essentially been reduced to paws. He had lost most of his fingers from woodworking. When he lost his fingers, did he lose anything essential to his personhood, to his self, to his soul? He didn't. He lost some dexterity, he lost some you know, abilities. Your soul is that which is irreducible. Apart from it, you don't exist. It's not your limbs. It's not your digits. This week I had this remarkable experience. I, a friend of mine from college uh, told me he was coming to New Haven for the day to visit an old friend. And so I said I'd pick him up at the train station. I picked up my friend, Mickey, and, and, and Mickey said, um, I'm going to see John. He's in the hospital. He, I'd, I'd heard something about my friend John that he'd had some sort of surgery or whatever. I didn't realize he's in the hospital. He's had a heart 
transplant. And he's spent at least a month or so in a coma. And I think he's going to recognize me, but I'm not sure. And I asked if I could come and see my old friend as well. And Mickey called his wife, and the wife said, well, is it, if it's from college days, OK, that, that'd be fine. And I walk in, and my, my friend sees Mickey right away, and his eyes just light up. And then he looks at me, and he says, Hutch, you gave me a penalty for using profanity in a flag football game. <laughs> I was that guy, apparently, in college. <laughs> I hadn't seen my friend John in 30, 33 years since we'd been commissioned as officers together in the Navy. And his whole heart is gone. He's got a new heart. He didn't lose a single thing of his soul, of his essence, of his personhood. It's remarkable, this mysterious spiritual soul that you've been given. It's the essential, irreducible you. It's a treasure house. So what are you going to fill it with? What are you going to fill your irreducible soul with? It's never empty. It's going to be full of something. With what do you fill it? If Jesus hasn't made the either or plain in this parable, he makes it super plain just four chapters later in Luke chapter 16. Of course, so much of life is a both and. Of course, so much of life is that. We love the daytime and the nighttime, men and women. You know, life is a full experience of both and. But there are, there are aspects of the kingdom where Soren Kierkegaard is exactly right. And he says, both and is the way to hell. Either or is the way to heaven. And this is a plain either or. And if we didn't get it in this parable, Jesus makes it plain four chapters later when he says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in the original Greek, Jesus means you cannot serve God and money. It's an either or. Your heart is filled with either the treasury of the kingdom or the foolishness of the, boor the boring stuffed full of itself self. So that takes us to the final section of this text, the precepts, these remarkable precepts, what it looks like then to fill our souls with the riches of the kingdom. How do we do this? How do we do this? And we have all these principles here that Jesus gives us in this final section. Perhaps it's, a, it's, a, it's a, appropriate to sum them up this way. We fill our souls with the riches of the kingdom by seeking his kingdom. Not just passively waiting for it. Seeking himself, seeking his relationship with his people, seeking the values, the joy and peace and love and patience and long-suffering of the kingdom. We fill our souls with the riches of the kingdom by seeking the kingdom and by fearing not, not being distracted by fears and anxieties. Jesus comes to give us this abundant life and he comes to persuade us of it. Persuade us that this way of living is far superior to that sort of boring man that began the passage. Jesus, make my brother give me a bunch of stuff. Jesus has a way of living that's far superior to that. 
a way of living far superior than this rich man building more barns so I can keep hold of my stuff. Jesus' way of living is far superior to that, and he's come to persuade us of it. And in this passage, he, he, we see at least these four reasons he gives us in these remarkable precepts. First, verse 23, he just restates and expands the preliminary principle that life does not consist in our abundance of possessions. But notice he actually says life is more than that. So he expands upon that idea. In other words, life is something, not only is it not our possessions, it's something more than our possessions. It'd be sort of ridiculous. It'd be a, it would just sort of end the whole thing if Jesus said, life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. In fact, it doesn't consist of anything at all. Life's meaningless. Good, just game ender right there. That's not what he says, of course. Life does not consist in the abundance. It's more than that. And notice he's actually not throwing possessions under the bus here. He's saying we know the beauty of life. It begins as a starting point with the beauty and wonder of possessions. And then he goes on to give us these images of the natural world, the sparrows, the flowers of the field. And so... Think of, think of the, the, the beautiful things that you've had in your life and that you have right now. A favorite jacket, favorite set of, pair of shoes, wonderful painting, a photo. These are given as gifts, as signs and wonders, essentially, of the kingdom. You're to look through those possessions to the wonders and beauties of the kingdom. How ridiculous would it be to, let's say, you're taking a trip to Hartford, you're driving up 91, and you see a road sign that says, Hartford, 18 miles. And so you slam on the brakes. I found Hartford. And you pull over, and you get out of the car, and you camp out by that sign. I found Hartford. I found it. That's how foolish it is to think you found life when you found beautiful things in this life. God gives us beautiful things, but don't handcuff yourself to them. Look through them to the wonders of the kingdom. That's the first reason Jesus gives us why it's a foolish way of living versus this wise way of living. The second reason, he goes on in verse 24 and then repeats it in 27 and 28. He gives us these images of the natural world the birds, the flowers. And he says, look at how God feeds and clothes his creation, this natural world, in such remarkable, beautiful ways. And he loves you more than that. Notice he doesn't necessarily say, in this life, you're going to get clothes prettier than the clothes of flowers. I think there's certainly a promise of that in the next life. But what he says is, look how beautiful it all is. And he loves you more than that. He loves you more than that. This is not an argument from the lesser to the greater so much as from the greater to the far greater. He doesn't say, look at the flowers. Aren't they just boring and dull? They're all like gray and brown. They're all just basically weeds. Don't worry. God loves you more than that. Look at the birds. They, they just, they fall out of the nest and they just hit the earth and just die, every single one of them. Don't worry, God loves you more. It's not an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's an argument from the greater to the far greater. 
doesn't it do your soul good just to go outside and look at birds and flowers? Everybody has access to that. And God loves you more than that. Here's a third reason. He goes on to say, verses 25 and 26, is if you live according to that selfish man who just wanted a bunch of stuff from his brother, if you live like this rich farmer guy, that way just doesn't work. It doesn't work. He goes on to say, you, it, you can't extend your lifespan by anxiety. You can't. Now, there certainly are ways to statistically extend your lifespan, and we should do that. Good diet, good exercise. But guess what? Worry is not one of those ways. Anxiety is not one of those ways. Stuffing yourself with your boring self is not one of those ways. Greed is not one of those ways. Covetousness is not one of your, those ways. The I want these is not one of those ways. Jesus is trying to persuade us. He's the savior of our souls. He says it doesn't work. It doesn't work to extend our lives. And in fact, even if it does work with a small w work, verse 33 reminds us that stuff's going to disappear anyway. It's eventually going to disappear. You've gone to all this trouble just to acquire disappearing stuff. It doesn't work. But then he gives us this fourth reason to persuade us away from this foolish way of living. He says, verse 29 and 30, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, because all the nations of the world seek after these things. All the nations of the world seek after these things. And you might remember how, generally speaking, when that phrase, the nations of the world, is used in the Hebrew Scriptures, and Jesus, certainly in that tradition, the author of the Scriptures, and then a faithful Jew, is like Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The, the, the Lord laughs at the nations. He holds them in derision. And in that tradition, Jesus is saying, don't be like this foolish man who wanted a bunch of stuff from his brother, like this foolish farmer. Why? Because all the nations do that. Essentially, and I use this theologically, don't live that way because that way is so damned boring. It is under damnation. That way of living is under God's derision and wrath. And it's so boring. And everybody does it. That's the default mode of the selfish fallen heart. Jesus is persuading us, don't be so damned boring. You were created to change the world. You and your infinite, excuse me, your particular soul, a finite soul, given infinite capacities in Christ when you're in union with him, is unique. Don't be so damned boring. Live in this radical way of the kingdom. See, this boring way of life, you may have heard this, but it's just boring. Even if you win the rat race, what? You're still a rat. <laughs> this is the way of life for all those, as, as we confessed our sin earlier this morning, and Preston voiced this for us. This is the way of life of all those that have cut themselves off from the Heavenly Father. They've cut themselves off from Him. What a damned and boring way to live. We have a Heavenly Father. He created us to change the world. He created us 
to receive the riches of the kingdom, which then make you radical. It makes you generous and creative and adventurous and courageous and kind. So we wrap up. Instead of stuffing ourselves with our boring selves, instead of letting greed and covetousness and the I wantsies take over and gorge themselves of our hearts and our souls, no, 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 we seek his kingdom and we fear not. Yes, we are a little flock. We fear not. We've been given the treasury of the kingdom. We sell all of our excess and we give to the needs of the kingdom. Do you see how much Jesus loves us here, saving our souls? Don't you want to give your heart to him? Don't you want to bring him into your heart? I'll end with this, this, this remarkable classic treatise that Bernard of Clairvaux, the medieval saint, wrote. And he talks about the four degrees of love. This has so radically changed my life. He talks about the, the four degrees of life, love and the, the first degree, which is thankfully fairly normal and common, is the love of self for self's sake. Some people don't even arise to that level, that degree of love. They hate themselves and just end their lives. So thankfully, it's fairly one common, this first degree of love, love of self for self's sake. You know, it's good for me to good, good night's sleep. I'm more energetic when I get sleep, so I'm going to take care of myself. That's good. But Bernard of Clairvaux goes on to say, but there's the second, this higher degree of love, which is above the sun, getting in touch with your creator, love of God for self's sake. It is very appropriate to love God for the benefits that gives you and brings you. And some arise to that degree of love. But then Bernard of Clairvaux says there's this higher, this third degree of love, which is the love of God for God's own sake. You see his beauty and his wonder, and irrespective of how that benefits you, you just love him. But Bernard of Clairvaux says, in his observations, it's very rare for someone to attain to the highest degree of love, which is the love of self for God's sake. That when you see the wonders and splendors of the kingdom, you bring those riches into your own heart because you know that you will be transformed to be a blessing in this world. The love of self for God's sake. Let's pray. Lord, you bring your riches to us every day, every week, every hour, every moment. But in particular, we praise you for gathering us in worship and now feeding us with the riches of the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus. We bring these treasures inside us in Christ's name. Amen.